Okay, you can grab your Bible and open to Mark chapter 10 one more time. Back in Mark chapter 10 this morning, at the beginning of this chapter last week, we witnessed Jesus counter the culture's low view of marriage with God's high view of marriage. Now we get to watch Jesus do the same thing when it comes to children. It may surprise you that those in the ancient world had an extremely low view of children, but not so with Jesus. He had a special love for children. And don't get me wrong, Jesus knew that children, they're not innocent or perfect. They're not little angels, they're more like little sinners, but he still had a special love for them. And one one thing that makes children so special is that they have not yet had the time to be hardened by their sin. And they're still sinners. But children can more readily be broken over their sin. But for older people, especially those who have failed to deal with their sin over many, many years, a callus can form over their heart. They can be very hard to reach. How does that happen? Well, how does any callus form? You do the same thing over and over again without stopping or changing. For example, I'm not a hiker, but earlier in the year I joined the guys on a 20-mile overnight hike in brand new hiking boots. That's called not a good idea. And about halfway through, my left pinky toe was basically one giant blister. And I did something I shouldn't have done, and I paid the consequences. And that's like sin. You sin, you do wrong, and you feel guilty. But if I went hiking every day, my left toe would hurt less and less. The skin would harden. Eventually, a callus would form. Eventually, I wouldn't feel anything at all anymore. And likewise, with your sin, if you don't stop your sin, a callus can form over your heart, so to speak, your inner self. And sin doesn't feel wrong anymore. You don't feel bad doing something wrong. And let me tell you, that's a very dangerous place to be. And that's why it can be so hard to reach such people with the gospel. Their heart has been closed and hardened off to the truth, and they don't feel they need a Savior. But not so with children. They still do wrong, but they haven't had the time to form that spiritual callus over their heart. They're still sensitive to their wrongdoing. They're still easily broken, for the most part. And that just so happens to be one of the prerequisites for salvation. You have to be genuinely broken over your sin in order to truly embrace Christ as your Savior. And that's why children are ripe for evangelism. Their hearts are ready. A little survey was done of born-again Christians asking them how old they were when they came to salvation. Simple enough, easy enough, very straightforward. I mean, how would you answer that question? How old were you when you came to true salvation? According to this one survey, about 63% came to Christ before age 20. And in total, 90% came before the age of 30. And the numbers get drastically lower as the years go by. Just to put things in perspective, make it easy to think about, picture a congregation of a 1,000 people, and then statistically, according to the survey, 548 would have come to Christ before 20, 337 between 20 and 30, 96 between 30 and 40, 15 between 40 and 50 years of age, just three people between 50 and 60, and then just one out of a 1,000 would have come to Christ between 60 and 70 and beyond. It's not to say that salvation can't happen later in life. It can. It does. It's not to say that these numbers are perfect. But if you've been in the church for a while, you probably know that it's it's roughly true. People seem to have come to know the Lord at a much younger age as opposed to a much older age. I like to think of this using the parable of the soils. A child's heart is like that freshly tilled soil. 
And it doesn't mean they're automatically saved. It just means their hearts are ready to be implanted with the seeds of the gospel. Older people, though, their hearts are like tough clay soil, just compacted down, compressed over the years. And the seed of the gospel just, just sits on top. And eventually the birds come and take it away. God is sovereign. His gospel is powerful enough to break through the hardest of hearts. So you can still be saved at 120. But at the same time, the parable of soils tells us not to expect those who are hardened in their sin to come to salvation as often. God obviously can do what he wants, but these people must first be broken, their heart, the soil of their heart, tilled by conviction of her sin. It doesn't happen as often. But again, all this goes to say that children are special. Their hearts are ripe for evangelism. And we're not interested in manipulation or coercion. I mean, it's true. You're a parent, you know, you can pretty much make your kids say anything or believe anything. Well, that's not what we're after. We're not just trying to manipulate. Our goal, though, is to plant the seed of the gospel deep in their heart with the prayer and hope that God will cause it to grow sometime in the future. So you need to believe that children are a worthy investment. You need to get busy with planting the gospel in their heart. All this is to say that we as a church, we need to have a very high view of children because the Lord has a high view of children. And that's what we come to see exemplified today in Mark chapter 10. How does our culture today view children, the world we live in? Today, children are often seen as burdens. They're inconveniences they impose in our time, our money, our lifestyles. Gets to the point now where restaurants, some restaurants are making you know, kid-free zones. We, just, we don't even want them in the building because they distract us in our quiet dinner time together. But what are more and more parents doing? Well, out of selfishness, they are not investing in their child. They're concerned about them and their time. So they let the TV raise their child. Just pop in front of the TV, spend no time with them. Instead of seeds of the gospel being planted in their heart, which is seeds of the world get planted in their heart. Or at its very most extreme, parents get rid of their children. And I'm talking about abortion. That's the ultimate low view of children, isn't it? And it stems from a high view of self. Yourself is so important. It's the mentality where this child doesn't fit into my plan, my life. This is not according to my lifestyle. This child is going to impose on my time, my money. I don't want to do this. I don't want to live like this. Why should I give up my life for that life? So I'll just get rid of it. Uh, that's the worldview behind abortion. But you won't find any such low view of children coming from the Lord, though. The culture, surprisingly, surrounding Jesus was, once again, just like ours when it comes to children, how they viewed children, just like last week, how they viewed divorce. Same thing today. But Jesus doesn't care about what the culture says. He confronts the culture, and he challenges it with the truth of God. And when it comes to children... The Lord would have you know that they are special. They're not burdens. They're treasures. They're not inconveniences. They're stewardships. They're not a waste of time. They're a worthy investment. This is a life we're talking about. And so we have today, it's a very short passage, just a couple verses, Mark 10, verses 13 through 16. But we learn what the Lord thinks about children. And I want to know that. I want to know what the Lord thinks about marriage and divorce learned that last week. I want to know what the Lord thinks about children. We come to find out today. 
There's a bonus, though, to Christ's teaching, because in this little passage, not only does he teach about children, but he also teaches about salvation. One of the reasons children are so precious to Jesus is because they perfectly picture what it takes to enter the kingdom. There's something very significant about children that we can learn from in order for us to enter the kingdom. And so what is it about children that pictures entering the kingdom of God? We're going to find that out as well as Jesus teaches. So Mark 10, verses 13 through 16 is a passage. This whole chapter, chapter 10, it's filled with little lessons that Jesus teaches as he's on the way to the cross. And though this passage is short, we find no small lesson on children and salvation. So short enough, let's read through the passage together now. These four verses, Mark 10, 13 through 16. It says, And they were bringing children to him, Jesus, so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Like I said, it's a short and sweet passage. It often gets overlooked, though. It's sandwiched in between two giants with Christ's very monumental teaching on divorce coming right before it and the very famous story of the rich young ruler coming after it. So this little passage often gets lost in the shuffle and not talked about a lot. But as usual, much is to be said, and I want to take us through a closer reading of this text. Jesus, he's clearly saying something significant about children and something more significant about salvation. So what is it? What's he really trying to say? And we want to take the time to find out. So we're just going to go through the verses like we normally do. And let's begin back at verse 13. Look there again, verse 13. It begins and says, They were bringing children to Jesus so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. At this time, Jesus, he's still in Perea. That's a region in Israel to the east of the Jordan River. And he and his disciples are staying in this house. And Christ is probably inside resting right now. We don't know for sure. The disciples outside. But nonetheless, in his final days, Christ's aim is to pretty much try to avoid the crowds. He's trying to stick with his 12 disciples, instruct them. It doesn't always work, though. The crowds have found him in Perea. And that right now, they found his house. They found the house he's staying at, so another group of people, they're showing up at his door looking for Jesus. But it's not just any group of people. This is a group of parents. It's like the local PTA. They start bringing their kids to this house, and they want Jesus to bless their kids. Now Mark uses the generic word for children, so it doesn't tell us very much. But Luke, in his gospel, he uses the word for infants. So these are little babies. These parents are bringing their babies, maybe their toddlers, to Jesus, and they want him to bless them. This is very customary for ancient Jews. Parents would bring their children to your prominent rabbi for his blessing upon them. That's what these parents want. Matthew, in his account, makes us explicit that these parents wanted Jesus to lay his hands on their children and to pray a special blessing over them. And that sounds good. I mean, if Jesus were here today in the flesh, I'd want him to hold my daughter, and pray for her. I'm sure you would too. 
Now, this also tells us a thing or two about these parents. Because at this time in Christ's ministry, it's near the end, what is his relationship like with the religious leaders, the establishment? It's not very good. He has opposed their hypocrisy and their wickedness. They, in turn, have slandered him. And they've gone even so far as to claim he's possessed by Satan. So they're, they're not on good terms. And, and everyone knows it. It's been apparent to people that Jesus does not fit with the religious establishment. They're opposite. So knowing all this, you as a parent, you still decide to bring your child to Jesus and not some other rabbi for his blessing. So what does that say? That says you are, you're casting your lot with Jesus. You're, you're taking his side. Jesus was and still is a very polarizing figure. And you're either for him or against him. And these parents, by bringing their kids to Jesus, they were saying, we're, we're for him. We are on his side, so to speak. These, these were likely disciples, other disciples. They valued his blessing over and against anyone else. And that sounds good. So far, so good. We hear about these parents. They're just a group of parents coming with their little babies to Jesus for a blessing. That sounds good. I mean, do you see a problem with that? You probably don't. But the disciples did. The 12 disciples, they see a big problem with this. We get the picture again. Jesus, he's probably inside this house resting. The disciples are outside. And they see this group of parents coming to Jesus. They see a big problem. They spring in the action and they start rebuking all of these parents. And it's a strong word. This word for rebuke means to censure or to scold. The 12 disciples were giving these parents a stern talking to sending them away. It was like a verbal lashing. I'm sure they were saying something like, you know, just you're not welcome here. Get out of here. How dare you trouble the master like this? He has far more important spiritual matters to attend to than your kids. So they're, they're not worth his time. You need to just leave. They're sending them away, rebuking them all. You get the picture that these 12 disciples are like bouncers. And Jesus is like the VIP inside. And these parents, they don't have a ticket. So they're just bouncing them all away. Now, it's a little unexpected that this response by the disciples, it's unexpected. Why are the disciples so strongly against these parents? And why don't they have any regard for these little children? Why this harsh response? Well, surely the disciples thought they were doing Jesus a favor. They were protecting his time. You know, he's in there resting probably. But if you really want to understand this harsh response by the disciples then it really helps for you to know a thing or two about how that culture viewed children. And I told you before that back then they had a very low view of children. And let's talk about that. I'll start off with the Roman culture. Today, I would say we have a low view of children, but we still have a very sentimental view towards children as well. They're, they're cute, they're cuddly, they're innocent. When a politician wants to gain some votes, what does he do? It's a picture of him kissing a baby. I don't know how that started, but that's how it works. Or when an organization wants to raise funds for hunger relief in Africa, which is a a great cause, what pictures do they show you? Starving children. I mean, there's a lot of starving people, but they show you the children because it evokes our greatest sympathy, and, and rightly so. But you wouldn't find this in the ancient world. There is no such common sympathy or sentimentality toward children. And why is that? Well, first, they had to live with the very harsh reality of a high infant mortality rate. 
Uh, there's a good chance that your newborn, your toddler, would not survive. And that, that hardens you. I'm sure it, it kept them from getting too attached from their little ones. It's a harsh reality. Also, in the ancient world, it's like they always struggled with the problem of too many mouths to feed. Disease, famine, drought were very common. It was just hard to live, hard to feed yourself, let alone an entire family. And so that's why roughly from 230 B.C. onward in Greece, for example, a one-child family was, was common. If you had a second child, if it was a boy, you would keep it just in case the first died. But if it was a girl, you would not keep it. And so what do you do? Well, believe it or not, people in the ancient world practiced infanticide which is the practice of killing babies. There was abortion, but I'm not talking about abortion. Abortion in ancient Rome was very dangerous, often took the life of the mother, so they didn't really practice abortion. Rather, they waited until the child was born, and then they left it to perish. Sometimes slave traders would take the infant, raise it for a life of slavery. Sometimes sex traders would take an infant girl, raise it for a life of prostitution but most were exposed to the elements and left to die. There's a famous ancient papyrus from Egypt. It's from the year 1 BC. Think about that. 1 BC expresses a very common pagan attitude toward children. It's a man named Hilarion. He's writing to his wife Alice from the city of Alexandria. And this is what he says in his little letter that has been preserved. He says, quote, I beg and entreat you, take care of the little one, And as soon as we receive our pay, I will send it up to you. If by chance you bear a child, if it is a boy, let it be. If it is a girl, expose it. End quote. And you know what that means. Let her her die. If this is shocking to you, if this sounds barbaric, it's really no different than abortion today. It's just waiting till after the womb, but it's no different. Same question, when does human life start? And when is human life protected by the law? According to the Judeo-Christian worldview, it's at conception. According to the U.S. Supreme Court, it's when a child can survive outside of the womb. Many people say it's at birth, but the Greeks and the Romans, they said it was even after birth. You're not protected by the law until the father formally includes you in the family through a religious ceremony. That's why the Romans, they did not consider exposure like this to be murder. This wasn't a crime. This was merely refusing to admit the child into society. And that's pretty much what abortion is today. It's the same thing. But as you can see, this is not so much of a warm and fuzzy attitude toward children, is it? They did not have a very happy or ideal view of children. Now that's the Romans, so that's very prevalent in that culture. But what about the Jews specifically? Because we're talking about the disciples, they were Jews. What was the Jewish view of children? Well, thankfully, the Jews did not practice infanticide, killing children. That was forbidden by God, and they they didn't go there, and that's good. But the Jews still had a very low view of children. According to Judaism at the time, children had no place in their system of religion. They had no standing before God. And why? It's because they weren't old enough to know and keep the law. They couldn't perform all the rites and rituals needed to earn God's favor. It wasn't roughly until you were 12 and older that you could start observing the traditions and you would have some merit in the religious community. But before this, when it came to anything of religious significance, children were basically inconsequential. They, They didn't really matter when it comes to spiritual things. 
And that's why the disciples are having such a harsh response and they're rebuking these parents because their, their kids don't matter. They're still clinging to this Jewish low estimation of children. And spiritually, these children are insignificant. They're non-entities. They, they don't merit Christ's time. Christ is he's here to do spiritual things that are important. And that doesn't include your kids. So they're sending them all away because the kids just aren't important spiritually. But this was not right. And this was not what Jesus thought. This was not his view of children. To him, they were not personally and spiritually insignificant. They were extremely significant. And to the contrary, he very much did believe that they were worthy of his time. The disciples, they should have known better, being with Jesus. He had talked about children before. And so when Jesus saw what was happening, he was not happy. Verse 14 even says, But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. That's another very strong word. He was angry. He was irate. This was no small violation. Normally Jesus reserved this righteous indignation for the Pharisees because they so misrepresented the character of God. But here, that's, that's what the disciples were doing. They were misrepresenting their master. This was not his view. And he was angry. They were still holding on to elements of this bankrupt Jewish legalistic culture which viewed children as spiritually inconsequential. So Jesus was not happy about this. When he saw his, his disciples turning these parents away, he, this was not going to fly. The, the disciples were rebuking these parents, but now Jesus in turn rebukes the disciples. And it's what he says next. It gets very interesting. In the middle of verse 14, after being angry, he said to them, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these and truly I say to you whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all this is very interesting indeed he starts off with this double command very simple he says permit them to come don't hinder them basically get out of the way open the door let them in He's telling them, this isn't my will. I'm not trying to keep them out. I'm not too busy for them. They're not unimportant to me. Just get out of the way. Let the kids come to me with their parents. That's the first part. Pretty straightforward. But then after this, Jesus gives a reason for why the children should be permitted to come. And he says, first, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now that can be a tough statement to interpret. He doesn't say the kingdom belongs to these, as meaning that the children right there in front of him, at the very least. He's saying it belongs to you such as these. So he's making a categorical statement. The question is, what category is he referring to? Is he saying the kingdom belongs to the category of actual children? Or the kingdom belongs to the category of people who are like children? And the answer is the latter. He's saying the kingdom belongs to the category of people who are like children. There's something special about children that pictures salvation. Children are perfect models of kingdom citizens. And in some way, all people must be like children if they are to enter the kingdom. And if, the, if it's not clear, Jesus himself clarifies what he means in verse 15, where he says again, Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child 
will not enter it at all. So he's making a point about spiritual children, those who are in some way like children. Now, this is not to say that actual children are excluded from the kingdom. In fact, I believe that actual children who die at a young age find a special place in God's kingdom. I'm going to talk about that later, so you hold on to that thought. But first, Christ is making a greater point here about those who want to be God's spiritual children. Do you want to be in God's family? Do you want to enter the kingdom of God? Then in some way, you must be like a child. And now that we have an obvious question, well, okay, what, what way? What's he talking about? How must we be like children? What, what is it about children that pictures salvation? Again, this is, a, this is an important question because you see through this, Jesus, he's now teaching not on children but on salvation. He's showing you the path to salvation yet again. So you want to listen up here. This is critical stuff. Only the answer is probably not what you think. How must we be like children in order to enter the kingdom? Well, when many people hear that, they think Jesus is referring to a child's purity and innocence. You've got to be pure and innocent like a child to enter the kingdom because God is pure. But as sweet as children are, they're not pure, they're not innocent. Jesus is under no illusions that children are innocent. Granted, they haven't had the time to display huge sins, but their heart is just as fallen and just as sinful from the very beginning. You may think that children are sweet and playful and kind, and they are, but these same little angels can also be demanding, selfish, temperamental, stubborn, thankless. Parents are all nodding right now. And amazingly, no one has to teach them to be like this. Nobody has to teach a little child to disobey their parents, to be angry, to be selfish, to say mine, to say no. They just learn. They just know it. It comes from within. An example, our little Olivia is just two. And one time Angel gave her three little candies, little Smarties candies, you know. Just gave her three. And we were also teaching her to share. And so I asked her, like, hey, can Daddy have one of those? And guess what she did? She immediately shoved all three in her mouth. (laughs) Instantly. It's like, me or no one's having these. And we laugh because it's it's cute in a way, but look, that's that's just pure selfishness. That's huge. And trust me, we didn't teach her that. That's not how I act at home in regards to candy. Maybe Angel, but not me. (laughs) I'm not sure if you can hear that right now. She's in the other room. But I trust all the parents, everyone who has kids, you know that they they come out as sinners and it's just a matter of time. It doesn't take long before it just starts to show itself. You don't have to learn it. You don't have to teach them. You have to teach them to obey, not to disobey. And it's just because it's within. So by no means is Jesus saying, you have to be pure and innocent like a child to enter the kingdom. All of us, children included, we're so far from being pure and innocent. That's why we're excluded from the kingdom. We're not innocent. No one's innocent. We're all born with guilt. And we add to that, we're guilty. So that, that's not what he's saying. That's not, that's not the connection. Rather, Jesus, he's making another categorical statement, something that's true of all children. And so the answer comes by reflecting on what is true of all children, all, all areas of the world, all societies, all eras. And the answer is nothing. Meaning, 
children come into the world with nothing. They have nothing. And therefore, they have nothing to commend themselves before others. And think about this. It's true for all infants and little children. They're weak. They're helpless. They're totally dependent upon others. In fact, if they're not cared for entirely at a young age, they will perish. They're totally helpless and dependent, right? And the issue here is status. Children have none. They have nothing to boast of. They have no accomplishments, no achievements, no qualifications, no merit of their own. Everything they do have was given to them by someone else. They have nothing of their own. And I want you to think about this. Think about all the reasons adults give for why they deserve to go to heaven. You know, ask someone, not in the church, but in the world, presumably, you know, hey, why do you deserve to go to heaven? What are the typical responses? Because I'm nice, I'm kind, I'm a good person, I'm really loving, I I do good deeds, I go to church, I do my best, I I avoid all the really bad stuff, I'm better than those people. I mean, the list goes on. These are all badges of honor that people wear thinking that God will accept them. But children, they can't claim any of these. They can't say this. What can an infant or small child say as to why they deserve to go to heaven? They've got nothing. They they can't say anything. They have no merit, no status. But that is why precisely they picture salvation. Because it's not based on merit or status. It's not based on deserving it or earning it. You don't get it because you're qualified by your accomplishments or your achievements or your good deeds. Rather, salvation comes as a gift. The free gift. And you must simply receive it. And that's how children get everything in life. They receive it as a gift of no merit of their own. It's just given to them. The Jews disregarded children spiritually. They were not accepted in the religious community and before God until they had something to bring, some religious merit. But again, that's why they model salvation. Because there's nothing you can bring before God to earn your salvation. It's not earned. It's not bought. It's received as a gift. And so what Jesus is actually giving here is a a beautiful picture of salvation by grace. By God's grace. And remember what that word means, grace. Unmerited favor. You don't merit this, but you get it anyway. You must come before God like a child in this regard. You come to God claiming no accomplishments, no achievements, no deeds, no qualifications that earn your way in. You, like a child, you have nothing to commend yourself before Him. You, like a child, you're completely dependent upon Him for life. This is exactly where God wants us, in a humble dependence on Him for all things. And when someone comes to Him humbly like this, God promises to hear them and to make them alive, give them eternal life. And you'll notice in verse 15, Jesus says, this is the only way. Keep that in mind. This is the only way into the kingdom. You must receive it like a child. Otherwise, you will not enter it at all. You will never, ever step foot into the kingdom. He uses a double negative in verse 15. In English, double negatives cancel each other out. But in Greek, they intensify one another. This is a strong negative. It's like apart from receiving salvation by grace, you will never, ever enter 
kingdom of God. Thankfully, though, the gift is available. You all know the verse, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. It's not as a result of works that no one may boast. See, kids don't even have the option of boasting, but that makes them ready. Because those who come with boasting are kept at the door. Paul wrote that verse, as you know. And Paul learned the lesson himself. Paul used to be someone who trusted in his own deeds and status to save him. He used to be a guy who thought he was good enough to enter heaven. He, he has to go. He, he earned it. He deserved it. He was so, such an upstanding Jew. He had the right qualifications. He earned his place in the kingdom. It's like Paul said in Philippians 3 in regards to his old self. Philippians 3 verse 4. He said, reflecting back, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is found in the law, found blameless. That's Paul's old short list of why he deserved to go to heaven, why he earned it. He had done all the right things. He was very religious. He had all this merit, these badges of honor, and that was his ticket in. But later Paul learned that none of this matters to God. God doesn't care about any of that. You can do all the good works you want, perform all the religious deeds you want, be of the right lineage, have the right parents. That doesn't make you righteous. You have sinned. You are unrighteousness, unrighteous. We have a sin and righteousness problem, and you can't pay that back. You do all the good works you want. That doesn't pay down your debt of sin and righteousness before the Lord. We have all already fallen short. So listen and understand, good people don't go to heaven. Good people don't go to heaven. In fact, really, there are no good people. We've all sinned, and only those who humbly go to Christ for forgiveness find it and are given righteousness, the righteousness that we need to enter heaven. But the problem is, for so many people, they are still actively relying on their own supposed goodness and good deeds to get them into heaven, and so they don't turn to Christ like they need to. They're relying on themselves. Thankfully, though, for Paul, he was humbled, and he learned, like he continues in Philippians 3, verse 7. He says, But whatever things were gain to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So all those accomplishments, they're gone. They mean nothing. Just give me Christ. He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, how clear is that? It's not about me. It's not about the righteousness I can buy or provide. It's I want it as a gift based on faith in Christ. And that's how it's received. Paul learned it's not about earning it. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can do. You can go to church all you want, read your Bible all you want, give lots of money. It doesn't earn you righteousness. 
Salvation is not an accomplishment. It's a gift, and you must receive it. And so you might ask, well, okay, well, how do you receive it? And we've already said, it's very clear, by faith. You receive the gift by faith. To become like a child then means you become helpless and dependent. That requires trust and humility, and that will lead you to the door of faith. And it's just like Jesus said earlier about children, Matthew 18, verses 3 and 4. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Sadly, though, some people are too proud for the kingdom. They don't want to think of themselves as humble and dependent, helpless. They, they are too proud and relying on their accomplishments. But only those who are humbled by their sin before a holy God and recognize that, in fact, they are helpless and dependent like a child will come to the place of faith in Jesus where they will receive salvation as a gift. It's the only way in. You receive it by grace, working through your faith. Let's listen to one more verse, Titus 3, 4-7, where Paul says later, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified, made right with God, by grace we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Salvation always has been and always will be by God's pure grace working through faith. And to receive it, you must become like a child. Well, to finish this off, we have one more verse. Look at verse 16 if you're still in Mark 10. Just the conclusion of this little story. He took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. At first, Jesus rebuked the disciples for turning the parents away. Then he taught them about how special children were in picturing the kingdom. And now Jesus visibly demonstrates his love and his care for these little ones. He takes them, he blesses them. It's another intensive word. It says he fervently blessed them. It's not just a cheap one-word blessing for all these kids going down the line. He took them in his arms. Each one prayed for each one. They were worth his time. Now, I want to mention one last thing, though. You know, we've, we've made this point that Jesus, he valued these children because, really, because of their symbolic nature. They were perfect little symbols for how you enter the kingdom. That kind of leaves us asking, is that the only reason Jesus cared about these children? Because they were good symbols for him to make a point off of? Does he actually care about these children in front of him? The answer there is very much yes. He does care about these actual children. Verse 16 makes that very clear. He takes them, he blesses them. He doesn't bless his enemies like this. He only blesses those of the kingdom like this. It is true that children here are used to picture what it takes to enter the kingdom, but children are by no means excluded from that kingdom. It would be ridiculous to think that Jesus would actually be excluding the little kids in front of him, using them just to make a point. Rather, we would argue that little children are in fact so precious to God 
that when they sadly die, God graciously brings them into his kingdom. The kingdom really does belong to little ones. And I want to say just a few words on this. Why why would we say that? Why would we believe that God saves children who die before some age of accountability? Well, I want you to consider a few things. First, consider why would children be barred from the kingdom? Because they're sinners? Well, they are, but everyone's a sinner, and other sinners make it into the kingdom by God's grace. Well, because they don't have any good deeds to commend themselves? Well, thankfully, salvation is not by good deeds, so they don't have to worry about that. Well, because they don't have faith. Faith is our our key into the door, right? Well, yes, but faith is merely the means God uses to sovereignly administer his salvation, his gift. The gift of salvation is still God's to give. And even Ephesians 2 says that even faith is a gift. You see, ultimately, how does anyone enter the kingdom? It's by God's gracious choice. He is sovereign in salvation, and God chooses who receives the gift. It's an inescapable teaching from Scripture. For example, just one example, Acts 13, 48. Gentiles come to salvation. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. How many people believed? Well, as many as were appointed to believe. All salvation is by God's grace gift. Look, nobody earns it. Nobody deserves it. Nobody buys it. Everyone receives it as a gift, as God sees fit. But there is one big difference between the guilt of an adult and the guilt of a little infant or small child. And as adults, we all know right from wrong. We know God. We know sin. We have willingly joined rebellion against God. But for the baby in the womb, or the infant, the very small child. They don't know better. They don't know right from wrong. They don't know God or sin. Are they rebels? Yes. Are they sinners? Yes. But they have not consciously joined this rebellion against God like we have. They have not made a conscious choice to rebel against God like we have. Therefore, God holds them less accountable before some age of accountability. And there are several passages in scripture that speak of children in this way. For example, remember how the Israelites sinned after the Exodus? So God judged them all. They were all going to die in the wilderness. They weren't going to enter the Holy Land. But God showed mercy on one group of people. And who was it? It was the little children. Why? God says because they didn't know better. Deuteronomy 139, God says, Your little ones who you said would become a prey... And your sons, who this day have no knowledge of good or evil, shall enter there. And I will give it to them. They shall possess it. The only ones who made it to the promised land from that generation were the kids who didn't know better. They grew up. They entered. These kids were not sinless. No. But God was not holding them accountable. Also, Jonah 4.11. Just another quick example. What was God's own reason for not destroying Nineveh? Nineveh was a pagan, extremely wicked city, but God said he was going to show compassion and spare the entire city on behalf of whom? God says he was going to spare all those people who do not know the difference between the right hand and the left. That's talking about children. They don't know better. Are they sinners? Yes. 
But in God's mercy, they're not held accountable because they don't know better like we do. We can say a lot on this issue, turn it into several sermons. If you yourself piques your interest, you want to learn more, honestly, everything I said would be really indebted to John MacArthur's book called Safe in the Arms of God. Really, uh, his teaching is pretty good on this. I'll just say this when it comes to Mark chapter 10, our text, that there are enough reasons in Scripture to believe that when Jesus said the kingdom belongs to such as these, that he actually was including the class of little children. And I believe our teaching in Mark 10, in fact, only adds to the case for infant salvation before some age of accountability. And how old is that? People always ask, what's the age of accountability? Scripture doesn't say. The only reference is to kids who don't fully understand right from wrong. They don't know sin. They don't know God. Personally, I feel that when a child is old enough to genuinely feel a sense of shame over being naked, they've crossed that line. You all know that happens for kids. They, they come to a point where they're ashamed of their nakedness. If you don't understand that, go back and get the sermon I preached on nakedness in the Bible. And that'll make sense to you. But with confidence, we can say that God so loves children and those with mental handicaps, we would include in this category, those who do not know better that when they die, he grants them entrance into the kingdom just by pure grace. And that's how anyone is saved anyway, just by God's pure grace. And just think, to the contrary, if God did send the little infant to hell, that infant would be consciously suffering in hell, but he would have no idea why he was there. He would have no knowledge of the sin that put him there. And God is just, and all sin deserves justice, but God is not cruel. And knowing God's character, knowing that hell is reserved for those who know their sin and know their rebellion against God, we can safely say that children are spared by his grace. And as a final side note, I'll just say, or rather I wouldn't say that all children are born saved, like they just come out of the womb and they're automatically saved, as if they grow up and they lose their salvation. Rather, we would simply say that if a child dies, you can be confident that he or she was among the elect and God will take them in. This is one of God's greatest mercies, especially in nations that are entirely pagan. Multitudes are still saved through their children. So to wrap this up, in all, what have we learned? Well, in more ways than one, that children are special. Children are highly regarded by God. God loves the least of these, the weak, the helpless, the needy. And even those who perish, they're safe in his arms. But for all children, they're a worthy investment. They're worth your time. And so all of you here at this church who serve in our little children's ministry, you are doing a great thing. Your service is highly valued before the Lord. That's not, it's not the lowest part of the church. That's the highest part of the church. You're investing in lives and hopefully future disciples. So give that your time. Plant the gospel in those hearts. There's literally nothing more valuable that is discipleship in action with a forward-looking theme. So we praise God for all of you who serve in our children's ministry and your parents who serve your own kids. You should be doing this as well. In addition, we learn that children are special because they serve as living pictures of what it takes for us to enter the kingdom. Children don't need to become like adults to be saved. Rather, us adults need to become like children to be saved. 
Realize that entrance into the kingdom, it's, it's of no merit of your own. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't. You have nothing to bring but sin and guilt. But thankfully, God is a merciful heavenly Father. And so go to him humble, like the prodigal son returning home with nothing. And God, he's a father. He will embrace you. He will always accept those who go to him. And you must go to him through his son, through faith in his death. And God will give you graciously, freely, the greatest gift of forgiveness, eternal life. So run to him and do it like the old hymn says. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's pray. Lord, those cherished words of, of that hymn are so true and they reflect even more cherished words of Scripture that apart from you and your grace and your mercy given to us through Jesus and our faith in him, we, we die. We, we die forever separated from you. But we thank you for the greatest gift of salvation in Christ. The price has been paid. We do bring sin and guilt, but Jesus died to pay for our sin, to cleanse our guilt, to make us righteous through him we are accepted Lord, we, we've heard this before, but I pray we remember, and on this you know, pre-Thanksgiving Sunday, we thank you all the more. This is our greatest reason to be thankful to God who has done so much for us, and it's just for free. We, we don't even deserve this, but we get literally the greatest gift. I pray all of us leave here this morning with thankful, rejoicing hearts, and we really delight in what you have done for us, and we live accordingly. Additionally, Lord, I pray we, we glean from this text a super high view of children. They're so worth our time. Whether we're parents or we work in children's ministry, whatever we do, when we give them our time, when we invest the truth in them, and we raise them up in the way they should go, they're, they're worth our sacrifice. And so motivate us. Uh, may we have a, child, a generation of children from this church rising up to fear you, to love you. And that is a great gift to us as well. We pray for that grace. We thank you for all that we have in Christ. And we, we bless your name as we depart. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.